0: And it forces us to ask the question, are we as the church doing the right thing? Is the body doing the right thing? And it's my concern for our church that we're, there are so many wonderful people carrying so many wonderful deposits of God and carrying those things that I hope we haven't missed the unifying idea that God calls us all together to be working towards. And so this morning, I want to make a case for what I believe that unifying idea is. I want to share it with you. I want to suggest a framework within which all these diverse, God-inspired, God-honoring passions that He has placed into us as we've read His Scriptures, as we've been moved by the Spirit, I want to, su- I want to suggest a framework within-, within which I think God brings all of those things into alignment in order to allow the church to do what He wants the church to do. So I'm going to share with you my conviction of why we're here, and then I'm going to attempt to tell you why I believe that. And hopefully some of you will agree with me by the end. Some of you may not, and that's okay. We'll work with you together anyway because we love one another. Right? Here is my conviction. My conviction is this. I believe that above all else, the Great Commission embodies the desires of God to be the focus of the body. Jesus said, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you even to the, always, even to the end of the age. I believe that when we live out the great commission, that we will operate as the body is supposed to function, that we will fulfill the purposes of God in our generation, and we will get to stand before Jesus one day and receive the commendation, well done, my good and faithful servants. I genuinely believe this. I hope some of you initially will will be like, yes, Brad, we're totally on board with that. But maybe some of you will not. And I understand that. I understand because there are many different parts of Scripture that speak to us and call our hearts alive. And so in the rest of this message, I want to do my best to explain why I believe this idea is the unifying idea that draws all of what God has said together. And that when we live to fulfill this command, everything else that God desires of us will also be done. Perhaps by the end you will agree with me. Maybe not. So I genuinely believe that in this command, Jesus gives us the framework that He lived through and the framework that we are called to live in as well. So I'm going to try and tell you why, and I'm going to do that in five reasonably brief steps, otherwise we might be here all morning. Okay. Here's the first thing I, I believe that... Yeah, the first reason I believe that the Great Commission ties us all together. The Great Commission covers everything that Jesus said. All of the commands that Jesus gave are caught up in the Great Commission. There's a holistic scope to the Great Commission that's not present in any of His other commands. Because at the end of His commission, Jesus says, I want you to, as you're making disciples of all nations, I want you to teach them to obey everything that I have already commanded you. All of the other commands that I have given to you in the scope of my life on earth and the three years that I've walked with you, as you go and continue the work that I've done, I want you to instruct people in all of those things. Those 70 plus commands that we uh, told you about in Luke and John, they're all covered in the Great Commission. None of them are left out. Right? The other 70 odd that probably exist in Matthew and Mark, they're covered in the Great Commission the passion that God has placed in your heart or in my heart to feed the hungry, to educate the poor, to care for the needy, to create community, to make people feel welcome, all of those things are a part of the Great Commission. Everything that Jesus taught and commanded his disciples to do is covered in the Great Commission. No other command in Scripture has that scope. No other command is as all-encompassing as the Great Commission is. And so when we adequately fulfill the Great Commission, we must, by default, be doing everything else that Jesus said. Otherwise, we're not obeying and we're not teaching others to obey everything that Jesus said. Does that make sense? That's my first reason. The Great Commission covers everything Jesus said. The second is, is this. The Great Commission was always God's mission. The Great Commission embodies the heart of God from the beginning of humanity to now. Long before Jesus entered the scene as a human, God's journey with humanity has been a journey of restoration. It's been a journey of restoring broken, sinful man to a holy, righteous God. That's what God has been about. In the beginning, Adam and Eve walked together with God in creation. And then, as we all know, we get to Genesis chapter 3. And the serpent and Eve and Adam and they're all together and the fruit is eaten and sin enters into the world. And that moment marks the moment at which man's fellowship with God is broken. And sin interposes itself between God and us. And you'll know if you continue reading the story that Adam and Eve are banished from the garden. And that God sends an angel to stand between them and the garden and to guard the gate with a flaming sword because they can never come back into Eden. And until the fullness of the gospel is realized, they can never come back into the fullness of that communion with God. And so from that point on, God has been working to restore humanity in their relationship with Him. From Adam through to Noah, God is working. From Noah to Abraham, from Abraham to Moses, from Moses to David, and from David to Jesus, from Jesus until now, God has been working to restore the relationship with us that was lost because of sin. Every section of that story is the story of God looking to restore man to himself. And over and over again, God makes this promise in Scripture to his people that he will be their God and they will be his people. And it's echoed finally in the book of Revelation. God expounds on it and says, and there will be no more tears and no more crying and no more pain and shame because I will be with them and I will wipe every tear from their eye. And it's this beautiful picture, this culmination of all that God has been working towards of man and God together again. And over and over again, it's sin that gets in the way of this desire of God. It was sin that caused God to destroy the world in a flood. It was sin that caused God to separate humanity into different languages at Babel. It was sin that caused Esau to trade away his birthright for a single meal. It was sin that caused the Israelites to refuse to enter into the promised land. It was sin that ultimately caused the destruction of the Israelite nation and allowed God to only leave a remnant behind. From the very beginning, sin has interposed itself between man and God, and it has created a rift that cannot be bridged. It's because of sin that the law was given to provide a way of redemption and sanctification and purification for the people of God so that they could again be in right relationship with God. God desired to forgive their sins so that He could know them and they could know Him. But despite all of God's constant work and grace... God's people constantly failed to eliminate sin from their lives. And they were constantly estranged from God. And so Jesus came as the culmination of God's work to redeem fallen humanity. And His mandate on earth was to do the will of the Father, to provide a way of redemption so that God's broken children could find a way to come back to Him. And in the Great Commission, Jesus commands His disciples to continue in that holy calling, John words it another way in his commission at the end of his gospel. We'll look at it in a moment. But he says, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. With the mission that I have been given, I am entrusting you to go and to do the same. That all the world might have the opportunity to be restored to their heavenly Father. That's God's greatest desire. I genuinely believe. Thirdly, the Great Commission was Jesus' final command." This might seem like a strange thing to say, but Jesus gave many commands during his time here on earth, and I mentioned some of those earlier, but the the Great Commission is one of the final commands that he gives to his disciples. It was unsolicited. No one asked him a question that prompted him to say it, but he appears to his disciples after his resurrection, after spending some time together with them, and he says, listen guys, I want you to go ahead of me to Galilee and wait for me there, and I will come to you. And I can imagine as they're getting together and they're gathered together in Galilee and they're waiting on a hill and they're like, what's Jesus going to say? Why has he asked us all to come together into this place? What's he going to do here? And off they go, expectant to meet with Jesus who hasn't constantly been with them after his resurrection. They want to hear what he has to say. And as he arrives, he says this, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. And after that meeting, Jesus, shortly thereafter, Jesus ascends into heaven. I don't know exactly how to place all the different endings of the different gospels and the ascension. But these are some of the parting words of the King of heaven, the creator of the heavens and the earth. God who became man in order to redeem humanity to himself now released these words to his disciples as his parting desire for them. As they were to continue on earth and he was to go back into heaven. To go and to make disciples. For me, that's quite a significant thing. Fourthly, not only was this great commission the end of Matthew's gospel, but this command is echoed in each of the four gospels. Each of the other three gospels. They contain elements that are very, very similar to this. In Luke In Luke 24, 45 to 49, Jesus tells his disciples to go and to preach the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, right? And if you're going to forgive people of their sins, they need to be able to do that before they're baptized. Those two ideas are tied very closely together. And to act as witnesses of the teachings of Jesus. Just as Matthew, in Matthew, Jesus told them to go make disciples, Jesus tells them, go be witnesses to all that I've taught. Just as Matthew said, Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you to do. Jesus is going to be witnesses of all that I've taught. Go live it out. Go and show the world how to live. Mark is basically a copy of Matthew's gospel. In Mark 16, it's the longer ending of Mark, which is why we believe it's probably been modeled of Matthew's gospel. Right? It displays the most similarities between the commissions. That the command to go into all the world is identical. Mark says to proclaim the gospel, which is like um, making disciples. And both contain a call to baptism. As we said just now, John uses different wording. In John, it's John 20 from 21 to 23. And there Jesus says, you need to know that as the Father has sent me, in the same way that I have come from heaven in order to make a way for humanity to be redeemed and joined to the Father again. So now I'm sending you. I'm giving you the same commission that I've had. The same role that I have had to come and to declare the kingdom of God, to show people that the king has arrived, that the kingdom has been inaugurated, and that there is a way to be forgiven of your sins and to come and to follow the king for all eternity. So I'm now sending you into all the world. Go. The Great Commission is echoed in each of the four gospels, the other three. Fifthly, finally, Jesus taught that salvation was more important than anything else. And this idea is echoed multiple times in the Gospels. I want to share two, two examples of that with you. And I think one is probably a little clearer than the other. We'll start with the first in Matthew chapter 7. You remember the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' great message that kind of summarizes most of what Jesus is taught. He says this towards the end of Matthew seven twenty-one to 23. This is kind of coming to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. In fact, many will say to me on that day, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? I will tell them plainly, I never knew you get away from me, you evildoers. I think this is probably a statement meant to separate those who pretend To follow Jesus from those who really do. But Jesus makes a significant observation. He says, there will come a point at the end of your life where you will stand before God and you will profess to have done many good things. And the thing that you will be judged on is not whether you have done the good things or not, but whether you knew him or not, whether he knew you. Get away from me, you evildoers. I never knew you. It's our relationship with Jesus that is at the core of what Jesus came to establish. Jesus will say to them, you are not my disciple. You did not follow me. You followed someone else. Doing good, godly things can be of no worth if it doesn't proceed from a relationship with Jesus. This is a reflection on the works-based gospel idea. You can't work your way into heaven doing good things. You will never be good enough. You can only access eternity with God through a relationship with Jesus. Later on in Matthew, Jesus reinforces this idea. He asks a rhetorical question. Matthew 16, 26. He says this, What good will it be for someone to gain the entire world and yet to forfeit their soul? What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? And I think this brings this idea a little bit more potently to the surface? Is there anything more significant than the salvation of your soul? Jesus asks. And when we look at it in relation to the other commands that we need to remember Jesus gave, God calls us to love the poor, the needy, the illiterate. But what good is it to teach a man to read if you don't lead him to Jesus? What good is it to give someone a job but not to show them the greatness of the Messiah. What at the end of their life can they ultimately trade for their soul? I'll never forget Francis Chan said in a sermon that I can't remember, but he said this. One of his greatest regrets, one of his deepest places of pain is to see people come to the end of their life and have won the wrong race. They've succeeded in everything but they haven't found Jesus. What can you give at the end of your life for your soul? Tragically, the answer is nothing. A relationship with Jesus is more important than anything else we can do for people. And we can do and should do very many good things for people. That's who God has called us to be. That's the story of the Good Samaritan and many others but if it doesn't help people understand who the Savior is, who the King is, you're just making the trip to hell a little bit more comfortable. That's a terrifying idea. All of the things that we can and should do for others around us are good, wonderful, and godly things, provided God inspired them. But they need to be subservient to a greater idea, They need to be subservient to a greater command to lead people to Jesus so that they would be His disciples. That's why I believe that the Great Commission is the command of God that best brings the church into focus. It's the command that unites all of God's other commands and mobilizes them towards this one end that people would be brought into a life-giving relationship with God so that they would be His disciples and ultimately so that they would continue in bringing others to be disciples. That's some of my reasoning. I've left some of it out because we would be here a long time. I hope you found that helpful. I hope you might agree with me. But I want to I draw this to a close by making two observations. Firstly, what happens when the Great Commission is not central to what we do? And secondly, what is it going to mean for us for the Great Commission to be central to what we do? So if we... If we allow anything other than the Great Commission to make disciples, to be the center of what the church is doing and what we as members of the church are doing, what happens? I think we lose the heart of making disciples. I think we do a lot of good things, but I don't know that we end up making disciples. Some of you may know this. You've heard people preach on the Great Commission before, you've studied it yourself, you might know that in the Great Commission, there is one main verb, and that main verb is not go. It is make disciples. And that main verb, to make disciples, is then modified by three participles. While you are going, in your going, is the first one. Baptizing people is the second one. And teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you is the third but the core, the heart of the Great Commission is to, go, is to make disciples. In your going, wherever you go, make disciples in each and every place that you find yourself. And baptize them as a part of that discipling process. And as a part of that discipling process, teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. You'll notice it's teach them to obey, not just teach them. Sidebar. Right. Obedience is what Jesus desires from us. The heart of the Great Commission is that we would make disciples. This is what Jesus did in his ministry on earth. He spent three years doing active ministry. The most important thing he did over those three years was invest in 12 men to make 12 disciples so that when he left, those 12 men would start a movement that covers half the world. He made disciples to find people and call them to follow him, to be his disciple, to be with him and to learn from him. And he said, I'm going to make you fishers of men. I will turn you into people who make disciples. See, when we move the Great Commission from the central place of the heart of the church, we lose disciple-making as our primary objective. Now, I want you to notice what Jesus intends in this. By commanding his disciples to teach them to obey all that he's commanded, he includes teaching them to obey the Great Commission itself. It's it's a self-sufficient statement. It's circular in the way in which it's constructed. Jesus intends that his disciples will replicate themselves. He intends that his disciples will make disciples and that their disciples will make disciples and that their disciples will make disciples, and so on and so forth. And I know that seems quite obvious, but often we miss that because we think the end point of a discipleship journey is to get people into church. And then we trust that the church will disciple people. I want to suggest to you that you haven't made a disciple until your disciple is discipling someone else. I think it's much more helpful to speak of disciple making rather than discipleship. And that's a, it's not an important Biblical distinction. It's important in our application. It's important in how we think and and process what God has given us to do. Are we making disciples who make disciples, or are we helping Christians be better Christians? Those are two very different ideas. Disciple making insists that the end point is slightly further away than helping Christians be good Christians it helps us recognize that disciples make disciples and that our disciples should make disciples and that our disciples' disciples should make disciples. Okay. So what does that mean for us? Let's bring, let's bring this into land. It's almost 11. All right, let's, let's say you agree with me. Hopefully some of you do. What do you need to do in order to bring the passion that God has put into your heart and the calling that God has put into your heart, how do you need to bring that into alignment with the call of the body to make disciples? Here's what I'd like to suggest. I think we need to adjust our measure of success. It's not enough to simply be a blessing to others, though that's good and, and, and a godly thing. But I believe God is calling us to more. No matter what you do or no matter how God has gifted you, no matter what ministry you're involved in or lead, I think you need to shift your goalposts until disciples who make disciples is an outcome of what you're doing. Are you using the space that you're in to disciple the people around you? Share a little bit of what God did for me this year in my life. I spent some time away with the Lord and in that time, we did a lot of praying. I did a lot of praying in a cemetery, which was quite strange, but it's where the Lord ended up speaking to me, right? And, and he said, Brad, I need you to create space in your weekly calendar to start discipling people actively, not just to, to hope that it will happen, not just to allow things to crop up as they crop up. And so I said, okay, Lord, who are the people that I need to disciple? And I sat and I waited on God, and he gave me five names. And I said, Lord, if this is not... Me, if this is you, then I'm going to ask them and they're going to be excited and they're going to be able to make the time slots. Like those are my two requirements because other times are going to be difficult. So so I went and I asked the people and each one of them said, you know what, we'd love to do that. We can make that time. We'll make it happen. And then God began to add some others along the way. And then God said to me and he began to ask me, Brad, what are you discipling people towards? And honestly, I didn't know the answer. Right? you want to say maturity, that's very helpful. John will often do this to us, and he'll say, okay, what do you mean by that? And then you'll tell John what you mean by that, and you'll say, okay, now what do you mean by that? <laughs> right? It's a very frustrating conversation to be in, but it's very helpful. Because it causes you to push deeper than what you're conditioned to think. And to create pictures of what that actually begins to look like. So I encountered some, some people, John Abramson, and some of the guys from J-Life... And they spoke about a thing called a DDP. And I was like, that's a great anagram. What is that? Right? So what is your description of a discipled person? What is your end goal? What are you discipling towards? Because if you don't have that, you're just like, great. I've got these people. I'm discipling them. It's excellent. When does it end? When did they progress from being discipled and cared for, like Jesus' disciples were discipled and cared for, But then ultimately Jesus left and they had to go and they had to put on their big boy pants and they had to do the work themselves, right? Yeah, the spirit was with them and God was with them and Jesus was with them always, but he was no longer right next to them. He wasn't the guy doing the ministry. It struck me the other day as I read the description of Jesus and the demon act at the Gerasenes that he does this wonderful exorcism and everyone focuses on the legion of demons that leaves this guy and goes into the pig's. And then I remembered that there were 12 men standing next to him who got to watch and who got to see Jesus working. And later on, they're the guys that have to go, and they're the guys who encounter the demoniac at the garrisons and they have to do it. When is that point? And how do you know that you're working towards it? And so I took some time and I sat with the Lord and I said, Okay, God, help me. Help me to know what a discipled person looks like. What am I working towards? What are the character things that we want to see in a person who has, like, reached a place of maturity in their in their character? What are the things I'd like to see them living and doing in their life that I would know that they have reached a place where they are ready to carry this into others? And I made a list and I wrote it down and then I shared it with some people and I asked them for feedback. And now I know that's what we're journeying towards. And then I sit with them and I say, guys, I want you to know we're not just going to do this forever. This is not just like an an indefinite situation. We're going to work together. And in two years, I want to get you from here to there. That's what I want to see in you. And you know what? Some of this stuff, I'm not equipped to help people in. And so I need to get help for me because if I can't model it for others, then I need it modeled into me and built into me. But then there are people and tools that I can use, and we can go and be a part of it together. And I can sit with John and Shirley, and I can say, guys, pour this into us. Help us. I can sit with John and Terry. I can sit with Gertrude. I can sit with people who are carrying it. And I can say, put it into us. Help us to pick this up and carry it so that we can impart it to others. How can you do that in your life? Who are the people? Who are the relationships that God has given you favor to pursue in your life at the moment? Do they know the Lord yet or not? Doesn't matter. You can start discipling someone from outside the kingdom towards the kingdom. You can start discipling someone in the kingdom towards making disciples of people who are not in the kingdom yet. Just begin to ask that question. Is there one, are there one or two people that you just recognize God has given you favor with? He's given you a place where they, they trust what you have to say. There's a, there's a level of understanding that you carry together. Where you're able to speak into their life and they're able to receive it. Is God asking you to take that a little further? Take some time and ask Him. If you can't, if I say to you, who are you discipling and you don't have an answer, I want to really encourage you. I don't want to condemn you, right? Because I could easily have fallen into the same place of condemnation. But I want to ask you to sit before the Lord and say, God, who are you asking me to disciple? And if you feel ill-equipped to begin to do that, ask, who is discipling me? Who can I go to? Who can I sit under? Who can I ask to pour into my life so that I will be able to pour into someone else? Because often that second step is not part of us. We want someone to pour into our lives so that we will be afloat and we'll just like make it through. But our call as Christians is not just to make it through. It's to equip people to be disciples of Jesus. Because by the Spirit, we're able to navigate this broken world that we want Jesus to round up and bring to an end. And in His power and in His authority, we're able to move through this and we're able to affect change both in our lives and in the lives of the people around us because the Spirit's at work in us. Who's God beginning to place in your heart? Maybe we're going to close and I want to I just create a space of silence and if there's, there aren't yet those people in your life, maybe take some time and just say, Lord, please will you begin to show me who you might be asking me to begin to disciple. And maybe, you need a, maybe you're like me and you need, a, you need a calendar slot. Maybe you need to say, God, what is the time slot? Is it seven o'clock on a Thursday morning? Is it four o'clock on a Monday afternoon? What is the space? Maybe, you, maybe that's not you and you, you're flexible and you can do that and it's fine, right? Maybe you just need to start asking God some significant questions. Maybe you need to ask God, God, have I actually... Being discipling people. Help me, Lord. If this isn't a desire in my heart, Lord, does this need to be a desire in my heart? Is this something I need to pick up? Have I missed something? Because we all miss things as we go along. And if you want to continue in this journey, if you're excited about this and you have questions, I'd love to chat to you afterwards. You're welcome to come bounce things with me. I'm learning. I'm growing. But I believe this is what God wants us as the church To do. As we do all the other things, we're making disciples who make disciples who make disciples. Let's pray together. Jesus, you came and you made disciples. You made 12. Lord, give us the grace to be the kind of disciples who are also able to do that. Who are also able to make people fishers of men. And for those that we disciple, to begin to disciple others. And Lord, for many of us, we're going to be hearing this and we're going to be engaging with this and it might sound quite different, quite strange for us. Lord, I pray that you begin to speak to us now in our hearts by your Spirit's. And if we, if we just need help to recognize what you are calling us to, I ask that you would begin to speak by your Spirit. Lord, if there are people that you are, are calling us as individuals to reach out to and to connect with and to begin a journey with, God, I ask that you begin to speak those names out, just into our hearts. Make us aware, Lord. If we need to create a space in our, in our weeks where we're able to begin to do this, even if it's once a month, maybe, Lord, if, if we need that, won't you show it to us? Jesus, we know that we need your help on this road. We can't do this alone, that we feel woefully inadequate. Lord, we thank you both for your spirit. And we thank you for those that you've placed around us. And Lord, I pray that you help us to rest in you and to rely on you and to seek the help of you and of others who are filled with you as we go on this journey. Lord, help Help us not to just to be a body of people that do a lot of very good things. But Lord, help us to be a body of people who do a lot of very good things and make disciples of people who make disciples of people who make disciples of people and bring people into the kingdom of God. We ask this in your name and we ask for your power to help us in doing this. Amen. 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 Friends, thank you for being with us this morning. I hope it's been a good morning for you. I hope it's been a good year. And I look forward to seeing you in the next decade.